Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are untangling our minds as we strive to decode the web of warped thinking and codependency. In the intricate tapestry of human relationships, certain threads can become entangled, creating knots that affect our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Warped thinking, also known as distorted thinking or cognitive distortions, refers to patterns of thoughts that are irrational, negative, and often contribute to emotional distress. Don't worry, there are different degrees of warped, from slightly askew to extreme torque. But here's the good news. Nothing is broken here. And with a little work and a shift in perspective, you can open up a whole new world of thinking. Raise your hand if you've ever had good intentions take a radical turn to manipulation and control. Too soon? Okay, hang in there. Maybe you know something's off, but you're just not sure why or how. It seems like you're always left holding the bag and things never turn out the way you'd hoped. By the way, just using the words always and never means you're listening at the right time. When left unchecked, warped thinking can become a breeding ground for unhealthy behaviors and relationships. So thanks for checking in and making the commitment to learn more. Let's dive in. At BreakingTheCycles.com, I found some foundational information to get us started. Cognitive distortions, when reality isn't what you think. This is by the expert Darlene Lancer. Cognitive distortions like overgeneralizing, labeling, self-criticism, and black and white or -or all-or-nothing thinking can skew your perceptions and may be caused by the anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, or perfectionism that often accompany codependency. Darlene Lancer, a frequent guest blogger on Breaking the Cycles, helps us understand cognitive distortions, how they harm us, and what a person can do to stop or change theirs. You might be thinking, who is Darlene Lancer? Well, she's the author of Codependency for Dummies and Conquering Shame and Codependency, Eight Steps to Freeing the True You, and her latest book is entitled Dealing with a Narcissist, Eight Steps to Raise Self-Esteem and Set Boundaries with Difficult People. Codependency can warp our perception. The shame and insecurity that it causes can change the way we view events and conversations. Additionally, our mind tricks us according to what we think, believe, and feel. These cognitive distortions reflect flawed thinking, often stemming from low self-esteem and cause unnecessary pain. The anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, or perfectionism that often accompany codependency can skew your perceptions. Negative filters distort reality and can generate stressful emotions. Thoughts stir up feelings, which in turn trigger more negative thoughts, creating a negative feedback loop. Being able to identify cognitive distortions builds our capacity to be mindful. Here are some. Negative filtering. Magnification labeling, personalization, black and white or all or nothing thinking, negative projections, overgeneralizing, and self-criticism. Let's dig into each of those. Self-criticism is the most pernicious aspect of codependency and low self-esteem. 
It distorts reality and your perception of yourself. It can make you feel guilty, flawed, and inadequate. Negative self-talk robs you of happiness, makes you miserable, and can lead to depression and illness. It leads to negative filtering, which itself is considered a cognitive distortion. Self-criticism produces other distortions, like magnification and labeling, when you call yourself an idiot, a failure, or a jerk, for example. Then there's magnification. This is when we exaggerate our weaknesses or responsibilities. We can also inflate negative projections and potential risks. It's also called catastrophizing because we're making mountains out of molehills or blowing things out of proportion. It's driven by insecurity and anxiety and escalates them. Another distortion is minimization, when we downplay the importance of our attributes, skills, positive thoughts, feelings, and events, like compliments. Shame also underlies personalization. It's when we take personal responsibility for things over which we have no control. We might also blame ourselves when anything bad happens as well as take the blame for things that happen to other people, even when it's attributable to their own actions. We can end up always feeling guilty or like a victim. If you're plagued by guilt, it may be a symptom of toxic shame. It's important to take the steps to analyze and free yourself from guilt. Do you think in absolutes? Things are all or nothing? You're the best or the worst, right or wrong, good or bad? When you say always or never, it's a clue that you may be thinking in absolutes. This involves magnification. If one thing goes wrong, we feel defeated. Why bother? If I can't do the entire workout, there's no point in exercising at all. There's no gray, no flexibility. But there are always extenuating circumstances. What applies in one instance may not be appropriate in another. An all-or-nothing attitude can cause you to overdo or miss out on opportunities to improve and gradually attain your goals. Exercising for 10 minutes or only some muscle groups has big health benefits compared to doing nothing at all. There are health risks to overdoing as well. If you do everyone's job, work overtime, and never ask for help, you will soon be drained, resentful, and eventually ill. Do you struggle with projecting the negative? Self-criticism and shame generate anticipation of failing and rejection. The future looms as a dangerous threat rather than a safe arena to explore and enjoy our lives. We may be projecting the unsafe home environment from our childhood and living as though that's happening right now. Perfectionists also distort reality by assuming negative events or negative outcomes are more likely to occur than positive ones. This creates tremendous anxiety about failing, making mistakes, and being judged. Overgeneralizations are opinions or statements that go beyond the truth or are broader than specific instances. We might form a belief based on a little evidence or only one example. We can jump from, Mary doesn't like me, to nobody likes me. When we generalize about a group of people or gender, it's usually false. When we use the words all or none, always or never, 
we probably are making an overgeneralization based on black and white thinking. Another overgeneralization is when we project the past onto the future. Perfectionists tend to overgeneralize by making global negative attributes about themselves and about their negative projections. When we don't measure up to our rigid, unrealistic standards, we not only think the worst of ourselves, we expect the worst to happen. I was first introduced to codependency seven years before I actually figured it out. (laughs) You know, you get someone telling you, you might be an enabler or you might be codependent, and you just table it because you're not really ready to hear it. You're not really ready to embrace it. You know, when I heard some of those traits, I thought, well, I'm just being helpful. I'm goal-driven. I have a lot of ideas. I have a lot of advice. I give it freely. I mean, that's what I thought. I'm just being helpful. I like to make everybody feel comfortable. I introduce everybody not because I'm uncomfortable. I feel like they're uncomfortable. But those were my thoughts. And then, of course, there's reality. And reality looks a little bit different. You know, there are many, many, many characteristics to codependency. And in some cases, it might be an overused word. People hear words like, people pleaser or enabler. A lot of times those characteristics are associated with alcohol abuse or supporting an alcohol abuser, or it could stem from childhood trauma. So many people just write off some of those tendencies as just quirks or like myself, I'm just making everyone feel comfortable. But in reality, it can be a very harmful deeply rooted, compulsive behavior. But the good news is you can get help for it. And it starts with identifying what's actually going on. If you can't be honest about those behaviors, if you can't see yourself in the moment reacting the way that you're reacting, then you'll never have a chance to redirect those reactions or emotions. You know, for me, it's always a knee-jerk reaction. It's the way my brain is wired. And it's not always bad, but taken too far or letting it spiral out of control can really be debilitating. I'm lucky to have a very loving and patient partner who at this age I was completely honest with. If you would have asked me 20 or 30 years ago, Number one, I wouldn't have known that I had this or that I had these types of characteristics. And I definitely don't think I would have been honest to myself or anyone else. It's easy to justify people-pleasing behavior. And it's also easy to victimize that these things are always happening to you. People are taking advantage of this behavior. And it isn't until you do a lot of soul-searching and a lot of work to understand what your role and responsibility is in how you're behaving, the types of boundaries that you set, the type of expectations you communicate to others and to yourself. So the good thing is, by having a loving and patient partner and being fully transparent, you can use that as a partnership to help you through some of these behaviors. Because a lot of times, When you're having a moment where you're overextending yourself or you're moving from compassion into control and you're stressing over things that have nothing to do with you, 
It's hard to recognize those in that moment. But if you have a loving partner, they can gently nudge you and let you know, hey, that's not yours to worry about. Relax. You don't have to get this right now. And that can gently help you redirect, which is amazing. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think it's important that you, first of all, understand what you're doing. Take your responsibility. It is your responsibility to get help, to either do the research, to dig in, to address your past, to see yourself and and what your role and responsibility is within your own relationships. And then it's your responsibility to explain your thinking as twisted and warped as you might think it is to a loving and trusted partner. Now, that doesn't just have to be a husband or, or significant other. It can be a best friend. It can be a family member. Come clean. Let them know this is something that you're struggling with. And you might need some help to redirect. And you would be surprised at how that might come to you. We're going to dig into some more about codependency. Over at goodtherapy.org, I found a great place to learn more about what it feels like to deal with codependency. Codependency involves sacrificing one's personal needs to try to meet the needs of others. Someone who's codependent has an extreme focus outside of themselves. Their thoughts and actions revolve around other people, like spouses or relatives. Codependency often appears in relationships that are unbalanced and unhealthy. A person with codependency often tries to save others from themselves. They may get hurt trying to cure a partner's addictions or abusive behaviors. Codependency doesn't qualify as a mental health diagnosis, mostly because the symptoms are so widely applicable. Yet, it can still cause severe distress. It may lead a person to develop other mental health concerns like anxiety. A therapist can help a person reduce codependent behaviors and develop healthier relationships. So what does codependency look like? In psychology, codependency describes one person's behavior and attitude rather than the relationship as a whole. Someone who is codependent often builds their identity around helping others. They may depend on others to validate their self-worth. A codependent person may deny their own desires or emotions to get this approval. Here are some common symptoms of codependency. And remember, if you want to learn more, you can go to coda.org and get a full list of characteristics. And remember, as well, you don't have to identify with all to identify as codependent. Low self-esteem. Codependency may cause feelings of shame and worthlessness. A person may believe they don't deserve happiness. If a person doesn't value themselves, they may try to get others to value them. This sense of being needed can prompt internal gratification even if the recipient doesn't show gratitude. Poor boundaries. Codependent people often feel responsible for others' happiness. They can have a hard time saying no or putting their own needs first. They may hide their true thoughts and feelings to avoid upsetting others. They have a need to save others. 
They may feel it's their duty to protect their loved ones from harm. If a loved one does something wrong, they will likely try to fix the situation on the loved one's behalf. Such behavior can prevent others from becoming independent or learning from their mistakes. It may also enable abuse or addiction to persist unchallenged. Self-denial. A codependent person often prioritizes others' well-being over their own. They may deny their own needs for rest, emotional support, and self-care. They may feel guilt or anxiety when asserting their own desires. Codependent people can feel uneasy when others offer support. They might struggle from perfectionism, often projecting an image of self-reliance and competence. It's common for people to take on more responsibilities than they can handle. When they make an error or receive criticism, they may grow insecure. They can struggle with control issues. A codependent person may link their own self-worth to others' well-being. If a loved one fails, a codependent person may feel as if they failed themselves. Their attempts to make others' lives better may shift into controlling or possessive behavior. Not every codependent will show all these symptoms, but if a person shows many of these traits, they may be codependent. This is usually rooted in childhood. Often a child grows up in a home where their emotions are ignored or punished. This emotional neglect can give the child low self-esteem and shame. They may believe their needs are not worth attending to. A young boy teaches his sister how to ride a bike. Typically, one or more parents are not filling the role as guardians. Their dysfunction could be due to addiction, mental health diagnosis, or other concerns. The child may need to perform tasks that exceed their developmental ability. For example, if a parent is regularly too drunk to fix dinner, a young child may learn to cook so the family doesn't go hungry. Often, the line between child and adult becomes blurred. If a parent isn't feeling their role, a child may become a pseudo-parent for their siblings. They might change a brother's diapers or help a sister finish homework. Sometimes a child's expected to care for their own parent. A parent experiencing domestic violence may turn to the child as a confidant. A parent with narcissism may demand the child provide them praise and comfort. These interactions are often called enmeshment. Since children are not fully grown, filling the role of adult can take all their effort. A child may be so focused on keeping the household running that they ignore their own needs. They may associate the caregiving role with feelings of stability and control. As a child, codependent behaviors can be necessary for survival. In adulthood, the behaviors are not as adaptive. In fact, codependency can prevent a person from developing truly stable relationships. Let me also interject here that trauma is not the same for everyone. Many of us hear the word trauma and we think of tragedy or very harsh traumatic events, but we're talking about children. So as a child, you don't really know your cognitive constitution. You don't really know your threshold for trauma. So you might have a person in an abusive, physically abusive relationship with a parent, but that can also look different. 
You could have uh, a child that stepped up emotionally to support a parent when a parent was having a struggle of their own emotionally. It's very easy to lean on a family member, even if it's a child. And sometimes that child may not be ready for those adult concepts or responsibilities. That child may feel like they need to protect their parent. So with that protection comes editing and lying in order to make that person feel comfortable in any situation. All of those factors can factor into the bigger picture, which is just too much emotional pressure at such a young age. And that can warp your thinking. Codependency may arise when someone is in a relationship with a person who has an addiction. The partner may abuse substances or they may have an addiction to gambling or shopping. The person with codependency may take on a caretaker role for their partner. The partner may rely on the caretaker to handle finances or household chores. If the addiction causes issues outside the relationship, the caretaker may cover for their partner. For example, someone who abuses alcohol may skip work. A codependent person may call the partner's boss on their behalf and claim their partner is ill. The caretaker often cares for their partner out of sincere desire to help, yet their behavior often enables the partner to continue the addiction. When the caretaker saves the partner from consequences, the partner often loses motivation to change. They may not seek the professional rehab they need. Without help, the addiction may get worse. With that said, the caretaker is not to blame for the other person's addiction. While codependency can contribute to someone refusing treatment, it's not the only cause. Barring a safety crisis, someone cannot force others into rehabilitation. This relationship can also harm the caretaker. The codependent person often throws their own needs to the side to care for the partner. Their habits can worsen within that time. They're unlikely to seek treatment for their own mental health concerns. Codependency can also develop from living in an abusive household or relationship. Emotional abuse can make people feel small or unimportant. Codependent behaviors can develop as a way to counteract those feelings. For example, someone may act as a caretaker for a person with addiction in order to feel needed. Another individual may try to earn gratitude by catering to others' needs at the cost of themselves. Saving others can make people feel empowered and important. A person with codependency may feel responsible for the abusive individual. If an abuser has an untreated mental health concern, the person may try to heal them with care. Yet love alone is not enough to treat a mental health condition. The abusive person will need professional care to begin recovery. Some people in codependent households may feel like they're protecting their family by keeping their problems private. But enabling one party's abuse often causes harm to the other family members. Failing to report child abuse can make a person an accessory after the fact and bring about legal consequences. Let's say a father gets involved in his daughter's homework. Parents with codependency may try to live vicariously through their children. Some parents may try to protect a child from all hardships in life. 
Others may try to control a child so they grow up to meet the parent's definition of success. This behavior can increase the risk of codependency in children. When children are allowed to explore the world and make their own plans, they develop a sense of independence. When parents make all the decisions, children may learn to ignore their own desires. They can also learn to place others' approval above their own needs. These effects can last for years. A codependent child may lack confidence and struggle to make decisions as an adult. They may seek out relationships in which someone else has all the power. Without help, the cycle of codependency may continue for another generation. I first heard it seven years ago. I really didn't know what it was either. Codependent? Like, what does that mean? I always thought I was super independent. I'm not really sure what that means. But it has so many extra facets that we're not even aware of. Now, I am a codependent in recovery. I can say that because I took a lot of time to really dig in. I went to Codependence Anonymous, a support group. Um, I also started really working on being more self-aware so I could catch myself in these behaviors. It was time to get honest with myself. But as I mentioned, it's a deeply rooted compulsive behavior. It's the way my brain is wired. So my knee-jerk reactions still go there time and time again. And just when I think I've, I've really beat it, it rears its ugly head. So let me tell you just a few of my crazy quirks to see if you resonate with any of this. So I'm an over-introducer. Now, that may not sound like a big deal. I certainly didn't think it was a big deal. Again, I like to connect with people. I like people to connect with other people. I'm very outgoing. I'm very social. I know a lot of people. I just want to introduce you. I want you to feel comfortable in that social situation. So a lot of times my friends that know this will say, hey, hey, wait a minute. I've already met that person. (laughs) Because a couple of passes around a room and I might introduce you again. But it was interesting. I had a coworker, a shyer person, who said to me one time, hey, don't introduce me to everyone. Hmm, I thought, who wouldn't want to know everyone? That's an interesting thought. But he had a really good reason. He said, then I have this pressure when I see that person out to remember their name, to make small talk, um, and that's just not me. I don't necessarily need to know everyone. So again, here I am, my thoughts versus reality. My thoughts are, why wouldn't you want to know everyone? And the reality is, there are reasons why you may not. So over-introducing, I don't know if anybody's raising their hands or shaking their head, but that's a big one. Another one is helping versus controlling. Sometimes that can be a fine line. And you really have to check yourself as to your motivation and what your expectation is. A lot of times helping someone, if you're genuinely helping someone, then there is zero expectation. You're not looking for anything in return. You just want to help someone. Now, if your helping starts to come with conditions or with advice of here's the way you should do it, and then I'm mad if you don't do it that way, then that's actually 
contingent upon your expectations. That's not really helpful. It's also important to kind of check yourself as to when you're invited to help versus you just extending your help unasked. That's a big one because you can skew that thinking in your brain, thinking that people rely on you and they've asked for your help when they really haven't asked for it. It's time to get honest with yourself. Really think about the fact of, is this my problem? Am I rushing in to save the day for some reason? Or am I just doing it because of my own agenda? It doesn't have to be malicious in nature, but just really check yourself. Ask yourself some of those questions. You know, wanting everyone to be comfortable, but causing more stress in the meantime. I've been guilty of that, where I have, instead of just letting people work it out on their own, I have smoothed things over in each party, wanting those two parties to get together and be comfortable. But instead of just stepping out of the way and letting that happen, I'm essentially controlling the situation, sort of playing both camps. Again, not in a malicious way. You don't have to be malevolent to not be helpful. You know, I liken it to when I take my dog to the dog groomer. I used to go to this dog groomer who had a bunch of dogs. And instead of them being in different pins at the time, they would all be crowded around the front, you know, ready to welcome in their mind the new dog coming in the door. Well, I would walk in and immediately become anxious trying to protect my dog. So I'm standing in front of her. I want her to get behind me. I'm kind of fending off the rest of the curious dogs. They might be barking or sniffing or whatever. And I'm anxious. Now, the groomer at this time is not anxious at all. She works around dogs all day long. She doesn't care. And I'm looking at her saying, hey, don't we need to help my dog out, you know, get comfortable in this situation? And she said, no, they'll work it out. Well, what if they bark and nip at each other? Well, that's how they talk. That's part of working it out. I mean, light bulb moment. Here I am defending my dog, getting in front of my dog. All the while, are you ready? I'm making my dog more anxious. If I would have just stepped out of the way and let my my dog work it out on their own, they would have found their own way. So that's just a little analogy, but think about that in your life. When have you interceded your opinion or idea with good intentions, but you cause the situation to either be uh, less communicative, uh, maybe harder to work out, more gray areas? You know, what would have happened if you just got out of the way and let people work it out on their own? Bailing people out doesn't help them. It hinders them. Every time you rush in to save the day, you remove that ability to problem solve and work it out on their own. So you might have a cape on and you might be doing a great thing in your mind, but essentially it can be harmful to others. By the way, wearing that cape and doing all that business is taking time away from your own nurturing, your own self-care. What could you do if you took all that energy that you channel into everyone else's life and you channel it into your own? Think about that. 
At medicalnewstoday.com, I found an important difference on codependency versus dependence that I think we need to explore. It's important to know the difference between depending on another person, which can be positive and desirable, and codependency, which can be harmful. The following are examples that illustrate the difference. So dependent, okay? The first one's dependent. Two people rely on each other for support and love. Both find value in the relationship. Sounds great, right? Codependent. The codependent person feels worthless unless they are needed by and make drastic sacrifices for the enabler. The enabler gets satisfaction from getting their every need met by the other person. The codependent is only happy when making extreme sacrifices for their partner. They feel they must be needed by this other person to have any purpose. Dependent. Both parties make their relationship a priority, but they can find joy in outside interests, other friends, and hobbies. Codependent. The codependent has no personal identity, interests, or values outside of their codependent relationship. Dependent. Both people can express their emotions and needs and find ways to make the relationship beneficial for both of them. Codependent. One person feels that their desires and needs are unimportant and will not express them. They may have difficulty recognizing their own feelings or needs at all. One or both parties can be codependent. A codependent person will neglect other important areas of their life to please their partner. Their extreme dedication to this one person may cause damage to other relationships, their career, their everyday responsibilities. The enabler's role is also dysfunctional. A person who relies upon a codependent doesn't learn how to have an equal, two-sided relationship and often comes to rely upon another person's sacrifices and neediness. Have you ever heard of the inner child concept? I'm sure you've heard of Carl Jung, but he uh, wrote a book called Healing the Child Within. It is a great book. I definitely urge you to read it if you want to learn more. But there's this idea that during trauma, now remember when I said trauma can be anything from what we would think as tragic trauma, physical, harmful abuse, to just emotional neediness that affects a child differently at a young age. So whatever the trauma is, there is this idea that when that happens, the inner child fails to progress. They stunt. So they stay at that age while your outer exterior, your other persona creates this protective shell. A lot of times you can see that in narcissism. So with a narcissist, they create this almost Humpty Dumpty breakable shell on the outside. They're very fierce, but if you crack it just a little bit, you can see uh, and expose some of that weakness. But that's just when you're when you're thinking about narcissism. But you can have this persona. So in myself, I think about it as professional and personal persona. And I really didn't know what that was. I used to think there was this disconnect, like professionally, I'm a tire woman. You know, I'm very strong. I'm very confident. I speak my mind. I don't get rattled. I don't avoid conflict. I'm perfectly fine in conflicting situations in business. But I'm exactly the opposite personally. Now, 
personally, I'm still very outgoing. And you might see myself and think, wow, she's super confident and she's, you know, she's very driven and all this good stuff. But what you don't see is some of those wounds of the inner child, you know, maybe taking things wrong or always thinking in any situation that I'm to blame. You know, when when something, when a relationship has a snag, someone that might protect that inner child is first to think, what's my role? What did I do? I must have done something to uh, cause this person to act the way they do. So the idea is to uncover that, dig a little bit deeper into it, expose it, and then what you want to do is bring those two into alignment. You want to soften your tough outer exterior while nurturing the child within, helping them meet on even playing fields. Okay? So let's just dig into a little bit of that. Elizabeth Woods helps us explore this idea of healing your wounded inner child found at the Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Foundation. A child that has suffered trauma and abuse in one form or another has had to adapt to the stressors and hurt. It doesn't matter if the abuse was emotional, physical, or sexual, that child has been damaged in his or her development. In an abusive environment, a child has only got one option to focus on the outside world. After a while, the child loses the ability to look inward and develop their own self-esteem. By looking deeply into how a child's dependency needs were not met, we find our wounded inner child. A child's normal development is stunted by abuse. For example, their feelings of anger and pain are being suppressed and their needs are constantly rejected and belittled. That innocent child is forced to develop a new false sense as a coping mechanism in order to survive. This child eventually grows up into an adult without self-esteem and identity and has difficulty in communicating and setting boundaries with others. That adult is carrying a wounded inner child and is affected in their behavior from this hurt. Think about it. How can you be intimate with a partner if you have never had love and don't have self-esteem? How often do you trust others around you? How can you communicate with people if you don't know who you are? How often do you live in your own theater because you don't know what you need? How many times have you had a tantrum when things don't go your way? How many times have you turned to drugs, alcohol, gambling, overeating, excessive physical activity, or shopping to numb the hurt? Until you address this hurt, your inner child will carry on disrupting your life. The core problem is that the wounded child is deep in your soul. We sometimes regress into those childish behaviors in response to certain events. As survivors, we don't know any other way because we never got those needs met in our childhood. Elizabeth said, I've done a lot of research on understanding and healing the inner child. It means going back to those horrific moments and giving that child exactly what they crave at the moment, love and reassurance. It also means understanding that because of the abuse, your development and basic needs were not met and that this has had a huge impact on your current life. This was a big light bulb moment for me, said Elizabeth, as I started to understand myself and the way I am in a deeper way. How many of us survivors have tried healing from deep within by connecting our present selves 
with our traumatized inner child. It involves going back to those moments in time when the trauma happened and seeing that hurt child. Grieve with your younger self for all those horrific experiences. Grieve together for all the neglect and ignorance you suffered as a result of the abuse. What does it feel like at that moment? What does your wounded self need from you? If you could go back in time as the adult you are now, what should have happened instead of the abuse? Try and reach out and talk to your inner child. Reassure them and let them know that they are loved and will be safe one day. Elizabeth said, as part of my own healing, I made a timeline of my childhood and my life. I noted specific painful trauma events that stood out for me. Those times that were the most painful and where I felt the most alone are where I started my focus. I went back to each one of them and wrote exactly what happened and how I felt holding nothing back. It's best to be brutally honest. Write it all down and pour it all out on a page. My childhood soon stood out like a huge thorn and it became blatantly obvious to me how much hurt and pain I had to survive. It was all there, out in the open, raw and unedited. The story of my childhood. It brought out the spectrum of emotions that I could imagine and some that I didn't expect. I wrote those down too, how it all affected me. Healing your inner child takes time. It's not something that can be rushed and it is painful. It's the most effective when going through each development hurt one at a time. Focus on how that pain and hurt affected you and how it's still affecting you now as an adult. Never rush your healing. Check in with yourself. How are you feeling today? What's on your mind? Do you have stress and tension in your body? What can you do to feel better? Take care of yourselves and remember you matter. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, untangling the web of warped thinking and codependency is a journey that requires self-reflection, courage, and a commitment to personal growth. Take your time. You're worth it. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear. That's when I found you.